If you haven't done so yet, I'm asking if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. There's Bibles in front of you. It'll also be projected up behind me, I think. If not, then that's a good reason to bring a Bible to church. So, um, what am Ah, oh, praise the Lord. Thank you. Prayer is powerful, folks, and that fits right into what we're going to be looking into this morning, the power of God. Thank you, Jesus. So, simple question. And when I ask a simple question like this, it's not rhetorical. I'm really asking you to ask your heart this. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, what does the world think of when they think of the church? Let me just take a quick poll. How many of you grew up in the church? Don't be afraid to raise hands. Nobody's going to, all right, wow, okay. So uh, maybe a, about a quarter of you. How, how many of you had limited to no exposure to the church growing up whatsoever? Okay. Um, how many grew up sporadically in the church with some sort of understanding of religion but no understanding of having relationship with Jesus? I figured there would be a high percentage of hands that would go up. For that. And there's other subcategories in between that doesn't care. There's a person that religiously grew up going to church, making, taking their family to a church being a priority and taking their, them there on a, real, on a regular basis just to grow up with good morals or people that grew up thinking that they were believing but found out later in life that they never genuinely believed and you might even be unclear on the reason that you are here this morning and you're not really sure what you believe in or what you're doing here or for one reason or another you find yourself here this morning and if that's you I just I want to welcome you I want to share a little brief testimony before we get into our passage but depending on your story it might be really easy to bring to recollection what society in general, and people who are decidedly outspokenly non-Christian think about the church, or perhaps you've been fortunate enough where you came to faith at a young age, you grew up in a really good gospel-preaching, healthy church, and you had a healthy experience of the church your whole life, and your understanding about what the world thinks of the church is informed more by evangelism than news or any rhetoric that you've seen go around. For me, it's not all that tough to remember what I thought of the church. I haven't been a believer for all that long. I was an unbeliever for longer than I've been a believer in this life. I wasn't strongly against the church, and I wasn't for it. It just never crossed my mind. I didn't think about it. When I did go, I was bored where I had no clue what was going on. It just seemed like a bunch of rituals that people were doing, and I didn't really get it. I'd gone to a couple of events where I was invited to just come out and hear like a movie or come and hear a speaker, and then they end up giving you this hard sell with the gospel at the end, and they button hook you, and then they're like, come, come, come to the altar, come. And after like 20 minutes, I'm just like, man, if I knew that I had to endure this just to get some free bacon and eggs, I would not have said yes to coming to this farcical event. Um, 
But that's probably where my thoughts ended. I thought it was a bunch of well-meaning people, but misguided, that came together for religious reasons, and I wasn't really interested in the whole thing, but I wasn't offended by it either. I wasn't really somebody that would um, make fun of the church, but I wasn't somebody that had any interest in it. I was one of those kinds of, hey man, you do you. If that's what makes you happy, you do your thing. Just don't get in my way of me doing my thing and doing what makes me happy. But I did, however, find interest in the church when I found myself in hot water and kinds of trouble where my thinker couldn't just reason my way out of. I remember after getting in some really big legal trouble in Colorado a couple of years before I got saved, and it was the biggest trouble that I had gotten into in my life up until that point, and I was facing several years in prison. I remember going to the local church in the town that I lived in, and I lived in a tiny little mountain town, and there was this giant church that literally took up like half the real estate in the middle of this giant mountain town. And I remember the pastor being so kind that he would pick me up because I didn't have a car. I had a suspended driver's license and he'd pick me up every Thursday to take me over to his house and he would feed me dinner and he would talk to me about Jesus. So my experience with the church was really not a negative one prior to Christianity. Another quick testimony before getting into the text. I had a couple year period where uh, some of you know who have known me for a while where I just lived in a Volkswagen bus and I, find, I traveled around the country selling grilled cheese for a living. That was um, who I was. And, and there was this group of hippies that would go to all these hippie festivals and events that I would go to who got radically saved and they bought a fleet of school buses and they turned them into a mobile church and they would just roll onto the parking lots of these festivals and basically they were a bunch of transient hippies who just brought their Christian witness to them to be able to share Jesus and become missionaries in the midst of this transient culture. And I can remember just nights after nights sitting and discussing things with them because they would hand out free potato soup. And I was broke, so I would go and get soup. And the, the thing was you had to hear them share the gospel in order to get a bowl of soup. So I'd go and get my soup. I had long dreadlocks at the time, so I'd eat my soup. And then I'd pull them back, and I'd tie them up in a bun and take off my glasses. Kind of like the, you don't recognize that Clark Kent's really Superman if he doesn't have his glasses kind of thing. And I would go back and get another bowl of soup and just talk about how dumb these Christians were for not getting that I'm the same guy. And they didn't even realize it. And they're probably thinking, he's back. We got to share the gospel twice with this dude. And I, I saw them when my life hit its low point, when I was living on the streets of New Orleans and I had nowhere to go. And they pull into New Orleans to the Jazz Festival in 2000. And they said, Eric, what are you doing? How did you get to this place? And I had no food, no place to live. And they took me in. They fed me. They bought me a bus ticket home to my place. So for my, for the most part, my view of the church was just one of apathy. I didn't think about it in a negative light. I didn't think about it in a positive light. I just didn't think about it at all. But how do you think the world sees the church? How do you think that people interact with the people that you interact with on a daily basis see the church? What do you think their thoughts are? I wonder 
How many people actually consider that? Do you think that they see joy as being the center of the church? When they look at the church, do you think that they cognitively put together this thought that this is a place where joy can certainly be found? that the gospel that we preach is being good news that they see as any kind of news at all, let alone being good news? Do you think that they see the gospel as a message of power and the church as being a place that possesses that power of God? Well, this morning I want to return to our study in the book of Acts and I want to look at the rapid spread of the gospel and how there was joy in the face of great opposition there was power in the preaching of the gospel that was accompanied by and as we see the text unfold I want to get personal and ask does the gospel still bring joy and does it still have the same power that we see manifested here in Acts chapter 8 and do people see the church as a home of joy and the outworking of the power of God so the passage starts off with Saul ravaging the church look with me at verses 1 through 3 it says and Saul approved of this execution meaning the execution of Stephen that we studied for three weeks and there arose on that gray on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. So this passage starts off with Saul ravaging the church. This is the man Saul who would later be renamed and become the apostle Paul. And in the Bible... A name change is often associated with a change in identity. He was no longer the Saul, the religious persecutor anymore. He was going to be given a new name when we get to chapter 9. Very similar to when we become Christians, we are given a brand new identity. We're no longer known for what we do. We're no longer identified by what we have done in the past, no matter how egregious it might be. For instance, I'm no longer Eric the drug addict or Eric the criminal. I've been given a new name, and that new name and that new identity is Christian. And Jesus is that identity. And please, never let the term Christian lose its power. I hear so many qualifiers go before the term Christian. I'm a premillennial, pre-wrath, post-tribulational, Calvinistic Christian. And it, never let the term Christian lose its power that you need so many qualifiers in order to just say that you are a lover of Jesus and a child of the King. The term Christian has meaning. Words lose their meaning over time, especially with misuse. But the term Christian should always mean something. But we're not at that part of the story yet. And Paul is still Saul and he's still acting the fool. And let me point out that what he was doing, he was doing out of religious zeal. Which proves, proves, if you're here today and you needed proof, religious zeal cannot save you. No matter how devout you are, you cannot be devout enough to conquer sin. It is infectious down to your very core. Saul was about as zealous as you can be in religion, 
and God actually viewed his zeal as a personal offense against himself. And we're going to see it very clearly in a couple of weeks when God has an encounter with Saul initiated by Jesus that he eventually ended up saving him and he became Paul, but it was not his religiosity that saved him. But up to this point, He's going through Jerusalem and he's singling out every single Christian that he can find. Verse 1 says that he approved of the stoning of Stephen. I don't want to go into just how graphic stoning was, but this is saying that he sat there and thought that was a good idea. That was how he thought he was worshiping God. I mean, that in itself is just really, really twisted. And then he's starting to go through, you see in verse 2, that the church is still burying Stephen and they're mourning his death. And by verse 3, they're still mourning their loss. So what does he do? As they're mourning, he ratchets up the persecution to the point where he's rounding up a posse to go into the house of Christians and drag them off into prison for their faith. And just a side note, Stop and think about what that must have looked like, just for a minute. You just put your brand new faith in this Jesus, who's no longer with us anymore in a bodily sense, where you could just go and see him and talk to him about these things. How much fear do you think that that put into the people? And this was not a one-done act of persecution. It uses a very vivid word. It says that he was literally ravaging the church. We're going to get into a discussion on the power of the gospel in a moment, but we see a little precursor to here. This man is running the opposite way of gospel Christianity as hard as he possibly can, and he is fighting against God as hard as he possibly can. God himself even says that in Acts chapter 9. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And spoiler alert, God ends up winning this battle. You might be here today and you are in the midst of running the other way. And I just want to let you know that whether you come in here carrying guilt and shame or stuff that you've done like Saul had to deal with, your stuff is little stuff in comparison to the beauty and majesty of the cross. And you can't outrun God no matter how fast you run. And I know that because I tried. Because there's something... There's something really important that I I don't want to miss in the initial verses. So I'm going to circle back to verse 1 before I move on in the text. Let me read it again. It says, Saul approved of the persecution. There arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. It says that as a result of Saul's persecution, the majority of the Christians began to flee Jerusalem and go into the surrounding areas for the first time. And guess what they took with them? Anybody want to guess? The gospel. The gospel went with them as they went about. So Saul, check this out as the irony of ironies, in his attempt to contain Christianity, actually was responsible for the spread of Christianity throughout the entire known empire. He was actually accomplishing the opposite of what he had set out and intended to do. All he accomplished to do was to take out this group of missionaries. That's what he tried. But all he ended up accomplishing 
was that this group of missionaries ended up going out of their comfort zone, left their home church, and they took the gospel into areas where the gospel had previously been unknown. And one of the great ironies of Scripture, Saul, who had later become the greatest church planter that the world has ever known, through his persecution, was responsible for the sending of the first missionaries of the church being planted outside of Jerusalem. Isn't God just so good that he could just take something so ugly and craft it into something beautiful? And that should be a powerful testimony to us, folks, that even we don't understand necessarily what is going on in your life, that God has a bigger plan than whatever it is that you are going through at that moment. Do you think that these early Christians liked the fact that their houses were being broken into and their family members were being carried off and that their church was being torn apart. Do you think they saw that as this God moment? I seriously doubt it. They probably saw it as the opposite of a God moment. God probably felt quite absent from them, and there were probably many who felt quite abandoned by what was going on. But there's two things that we can't miss here, that God was working big time, even though it looked like he wasn't, and God was using a painful situation to bring about the spread of the gospel that otherwise would not have brought about the spread of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ and you're here today and you're going through difficult circumstances, and we know that, it, we know that there's people that are. We've prayed for a couple of them here this morning. I can say with confidence that God is at work in your life. He's not absent from, he's not unaware of, and he's not wasting one part of what you're going through. Jesus was not just wasting the pain that they were going through as they were mourning the death of Stephen and then tried to potentially, they began to be dragged out of their homes. He was not wasting any of this. And I'm sure that they didn't feel that God was at work in this, but here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still the beneficiaries of what God was doing behind the scenes in a moment where he seemed as if he was absent. I mean, think about that. Whatever you came here with, God is at work just like he was at work in this section of Acts, even though it looked like it was the opposite of God being at work. Also, God was using their painful situation to bring about the spread of the gospel. Without the pain of verses 1 through 3, it's very unlikely that these early Christians would have ever felt compelled to even leave Jerusalem. But God gave them the necessary nudge that they needed to leave and to take the gospel with them. God was not wasting an ounce of their pain. He was leveraging it for the gospel opportunity. I've seen many, 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 many times over the years where God has used pain in my life much more than he's ever used my victories for the proclamation of the gospel. Listen, people rarely want to sit and listen to a story of let me take you into my trophy room and show you all of my trophies that dictate just how awesome I really am. They might sit and listen for a little bit, but what they're really doing is rolling their eyes inside, thinking I wish this narcissist would just leave me alone and let me go on my way. But pain, on the other hand, 
I cannot even begin to recount how many times I've bonded with somebody over the issue of pain and it gave an opportunity to speak the gospel into an already broken and humbled heart that was more receptive to hear the message of what Jesus had done. Every human ever can identify with pain. Do you hear me on that? Every human ever can identify with pain, which brings me to the last thing that I'm going to say in this section. Comfort is just one of the ways that God works in our life. To tell somebody, don't worry, God's going to work it all out. He's going to make it better. That might not always be true. In this life anyway. He will in the next. But guess what? God has other tools other than just comfort in his majestic tool belt. But the real kicker is when we begin to understand the character of God more and more, we can find comfort even in really uncomfortable situations and even be a comfort to those who are experiencing discomfort. And I know that because 2 Corinthians 1 tells me so. That's part of the function of the church and it's powerful. And it leads us to the next section that there is joy in living on mission for the gospel. Look with me at verses 4 through 8. And it says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of the man, um, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So it talks about there were people that were being scattered about in the preaching of the word, just like I was talking about, kind of like the next step of what you read in verse 1. And I love the word scattered here. It describes not only the people, but the way that the gospel actually went forth. It makes you think of 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul says that some scattered the seed of the gospel, some watered it, but it's God who causes the increase. So the people scattered as they went about, and they scattered the seeds of the gospel, and God was causing increase And then it zeroes in on this man named Philip. And Philip started preaching the gospel in Samaria, which, in case you are unaware of this, was a really radical move unto itself. The Jews hated the Samaritans and had a long-held, deep-seated racism against them. So for Philip to be telling the good news that the kingdom also belonged to a people that they had spent Hundreds of years hating was pretty radical. That was just something that people do not do. And it said that the entire crowd paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Oh, that I might experience that someday as a preacher. That would be awesome. But imagine that. Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the center of faith for the Jewish people, actually drove out the disciples and rejected the gospel. But the Samaritans, who were considered to be outside of the ability to receive God's love, listened to the gospel with one accord. And it shows you that there is no such thing and that there being a group that is inherently outside of being within the bounds of the love of Christ. I wonder if racists who call themselves Christians had this page missing from their Bible. Just like I said a couple of weeks ago that nasty Christians should be an oxymoron. And I said last week that non-serving Christians should be an oxymoron. Racist Christian should be two words that you could never, ever put together. And they listened to the message of the gospel as it was accompanied by demonstrations of power, as you see in verse 7. But it was also 
It was not just the demonstrations of power that drew them in at first. It was the love. It was the love of God, but specifically, they wouldn't have even known the love of God if the love of God didn't captivate Philip so much to where he was willing to even break down old racial barriers to go in with this message of the love of this one named Jesus who came and lived and died and atoned for the sin of these people. Let me ask you, is the church known for its love and being a leader in the area of reconciliation? Is that how people view the church? And if the answer is no, don't just sit there and say no and chuckle. What are you going to do about it? You personally, what are you going to do about it if you think that the answer is no? How are we supposed to be a beacon of God's love unless people see us as having God's love to begin with? And look at the result in verse 8. It says, so there was much joy in the city. It's almost jarring when you consider verse 8 within the context of verses 1 through 3. There was tons of persecution. Saul was ravaging the church in these first few verses. The people are confused. They can't really understand what God's doing. And then the disciples take this message of God's love into an area that had been dominated by the tension of 700 years of institutional racism just ripping through that area. Get that, 700 years is how long racism had dominated Samaria by this point. And the result is, not my words, much joy in the city. Man, let me ask you, is the church known for being the center of joy? Why or why not? Has the gospel brought great joy into your life? You who sit here. Again, not rhetorical. Has the gospel brought great joy into your life? And if you would justify no being an acceptable answer because of problems going in your life, I would invite you to go back and read the first six verses of this passage and see that they had problems too. Get this. If you are always complaining and grumbling and are more known for what you're against than what you are for, that is not a very attractive witness to the gospel. There's never been a person that's been like, man, that person just grumbles every time someone goes wrong. I want to know their Jesus. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's been one. I don't know. But I, I've never interviewed every Christian. But if they got saved that way, then that's really a testimony of the power of God. <laughs> you don't need the power of God working in and through your life to be a grumbler or a complainer. It's not like God came into your life to empower you to become super complainer. And I don't just mean that on an individual level. There are entire churches that fall into the pattern of grumbling and complaining and preaching a gospel of what they do not agree with. Simple question, why would anybody be attracted to that? People always ask, how do we get back to being the church of Acts? one of the biggest things you see in the gospel actually brought change into people's lives. And now they had the ability to not complain or grumble even in the face of tremendous circumstances. Why would somebody be attracted to a group of people that gathered together to grumble together and complain about things? There's nothing inherently attractive about that. So let me ask you, would you say that love and joy even in the midst of opposition, characterize your Christian life. You. 
Not the person who you're thinking should be here to hear this message. Would you say that they characterize your life? Would the people who know you, if I said describe this person, would they say, man, they are just always so loving and so joyful, and I've seen them get pounded by life, but it never takes them out, and I just can't explain it. Would people say that? Or do you grumble and toss your joy in the trash every time something goes differently than you had hoped? Listen, the gospel frees you from a life of grumbling or complaining. Do you get that? The gospel frees you from a life of grumbling and complaining. Would you say that people see the, center, the church as a center of joy? How much powerful in the world would our witness be if people could not help but look at the church and say, there's joy overflowing out of the doors of that place. And then combine it with the love that you saw in Philip and people could say, I don't get it, but that place is full of love and joy. Do you think that that's how people see the church? And there's one more aspect of the early church that we see in this text. And, and it was first, it was known for its love. It was known for being the center of joy. And lastly, the gospel was seen as being tremendously powerful. Look at verses 9 through 13. It says, but there was this man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. You always know that somebody's great when they have to tell you that they themselves are somebody great. Just so you know, in case you're wondering how to figure out what a great man looks like when he's like, I am somebody great, you found a good one. So ladies, if you're single, that's how to find the man you're looking for. I'm going to stop with the sarcasm. Um, They all paid attention to him, from the least even to the greatest, saying this is the man called the power of God that is called great by himself. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized and continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this passage starts off with Simon, the magician, a sorcerer of some kind, and he's known for being very powerful in the city. It says the people in the city all paid attention to him, that his nickname was the power of God. And in verses 11 and 12, they reiterate that the people paid attention to him and listened to him, and they followed him and even thought that he was great. And he's following the apostles around because he's intrigued by the power of this new message called the gospel. He sees all of these people believing in Jesus and being baptized and being healed. And he says that he wants to believe as well in being baptized. Just a footnote, what follows this section is odd. And everybody has the question, did he genuinely believe? And the short answer is, I don't know. Um, So I'm not going to speculate. But he seems to have an issue where he's more captivated by the power that is being displayed by the preaching of the gospel than being captivated by Jesus of the gospel itself. And just a tangent, it's interesting that the more things change, the more things stay the same. I've gone to many a church where they just talk about the powerful manifestations of things, yet the good news of Jesus Christ is not even proclaimed along with that special power that they're talking about. So whose power really is it? But the apostles hear that the gospel has penetrated even the city limits of Samaria. So what they do is they send Peter to verify if this is real. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says, Now 
when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent down Peter and John, who came down and prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, and they only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they sent Peter to verify if it's real, and he sees that the gospel is working powerfully, and he lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And let me just make a quick theological side note before I wrap up, because this passage has caused a lot of confusion for some people. Verses 16 and 17 seem to make this distinction, or at least a delay, between being saved in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. And it has led some churches to make it sound like receiving the Holy Spirit is some second act of grace. I remember going to a church when I was saved like three months and I'm pretty fresh off the streets and they're like, if you want to receive the Holy Ghost, come forward. And this dude's just like pounding me in the forehead, trying to like, I don't know, I guess he figured if he hit me enough that the Holy Ghost was going to get in there. And I was just like, listen, dude, I don't know what all this stuff is about, but I know if you hit me again, we're going to step outside. And I was happy about it. And that's just not theologically how it works, man. We're going to deal with this in great detail when we get to chapter 18 of the book of Acts. But let me make it clear, every person who receives Jesus receives the Holy Spirit at the exact moment of their conversion. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and through 13 make that very clear. It was a unique case because it was the first time that the gospel had gone out past the Jews in Jerusalem and God had to authenticate it with a sign that this was in fact genuine what they were seeing. So God comes down and falls on the Samaritans in a unique way to demonstrate that even this people that the bigoted Jews could not stand, were able to receive Jesus in the same way that the, Jew, that the Jews were. But the power that was on display was so great that Simon wanted it. And these will be our final verses of this morning. Look with me at verses 18 through 24. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on the hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money, and, you, and have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible this intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered and pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said would come upon me. We could get lost in talking about Simon, but first of all, uh, I'm about to wrap up in a second. And secondly, Simon's not the point. The point is that there was an unbelievable amount of power that was on display in the early church. The power to have joy in the midst of great opposition. <clears throat> the power to bring reconciliation in the midst of great strife. The power to break down racial barriers that were centuries old. Do you hear that? How often do we hear the news and it makes it sound as if it's impossible to break down racial barriers in this country because they're up to four or five hundred years old. This was seven hundred-year-old racial barriers that were filled with institutional hatred and the power of the gospel was enough to break through even that. Amen? The gospel was powerful enough to perform miracles and heal the sick 
the power to grab a hold of a man like Saul and turn him from a murderer into a mystery, a missionary. When people saw the gospel on display, they couldn't help but conclude this gospel changes lives. In fact, the gospel changes everything. Is the church known for its power? That's a tricky one. I've sat with enough Christians and I've watched them stomp their feet like babies about how the church no longer has the power that it once had in this country. Look, it never says that the church was the power in this text. The servants of the church are not supposed to be the power in this text. That's the thing that Simon did not seem to get. The gospel is the power, amen? That's the power that was moving throughout Samaria. The gospel was moving through and people are saying, there is something happening, man. I know something is happening, but I don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Anybody know who that quote's from? Nobody? No Bob Dylan fans out there? All right. Your loss, not mine. Do people still see the gospel as having power? Or do they look at the church as a little chickified Nancy Pants social club? Or some place that we go to get our moral lesson that we apply for the week. Let me ask you, how can the world possibly see the church as having power if we can't even figure out how to have unity within the church? Here we see the gospel being so powerful that it broke through 700 years of racial hatred. Yet I've yet to observe a church where even all of the people who supposedly love each other and come together by choice can maintain unity for any period of time. I mean, just in the last year, I've seen people break fellowship over the fact that their Calvinist friend was not Calvinist enough and didn't have as many points of Calvinism as I am. They're like, I, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm an eight-point Calvinist. I'm a 250-point Calvinist. It's like, congratulations, man. You and the other three people like you can have your own corner of heaven. I've seen people who've tried to repent to each other, break fellowship because they've denied the other person's apology as not being authentic enough. Or people who couldn't worship another because the songs were not hymnful enough. Or the songs were not contemporary enough. Or people become bitter because their ministry was not given enough attention. I mean, give me a break. How could you honestly expect the world to look at that and say, that's power. I want that bitterness. How can I learn to not get along with the people around me the way that they do? I need the church to show me. The world needs to see that the church believes and knows that God is in control even when we do not feel that things are in control. The world needs to see that people are able to love even those who are not easy for us to love. Because the love didn't come from you. It was supernaturally put there by the Holy Spirit, whose one of his divine attributes is love. So therefore, it should be manifesting itself in and through your life. A, the world needs to see a people that find their joy, even when things are not lining up to be perfectly joyful. The world needs to see a people who have a power 
and live with a power that demands a gospel explanation. Brothers and sisters, do you live your life in such a way where the only explanation of somebody who's observing your life is there has to be something different, and it demands a gospel explanation. You're not looking for a way to be able to squeeze the gospel in the door. Your life is such a testimony to the power and the change of the gospel that it demands people say what's different about you. So in my conclusion... One point and three questions. Point, have you been able to see God even in the midst of opposition? If you're going through opposition right now, do you still believe that God is at work or do you feel as if he's abandoned you? Secondly, do you have a love, a supernatural love that goes beyond tolerance? I used to live in Colorado, and I would drive through Boulder, and it was the cool thing for every car to have that tolerance bumper sticker. You know what? Tolerance is just hatred that you've learned to keep to yourself. We've been given something so much greater than tolerance. We've been given the ability to love people that are different. That takes something supernatural. Tolerance doesn't take supernatural. Love is supernatural. I can't believe the self-righteousness of those who preach tolerance when I'm like, you're not even coming close to the target. In fact, you're shooting the opposite direction of the target. Love should be what you're aiming for, not to simply tolerate joy. Do you have joy in the face of adversity where people can look at you when even the most difficult things are going wrong and your life just screams, our God reigns. And it hasn't changed in spite of what I'm going through. And lastly, power. If the Holy Spirit was not in your life, would anything change? What? What would it be? Do you live with a power where there's no worldly explanation and the only thing that people can conclude is the same thing that they concluded four chapters earlier in the book of Acts? These untrained men and women must have been with Jesus. And that's in whose name we'll pray and celebrate as we take communion. Jesus, we thank you so much for the power, the love, the joy that comes through receiving the message that we can't do it, but you never asked us to. You did it because we can't. You paid the price that we couldn't. You gave us the life that we didn't deserve. You conquered the death that we did deserve, and you've given us life eternal that we might be able to taste of your riches and glorious grace forever and ever. Amen.